Hey Kyle, Luciano Cuno here, born in Peru, raised in Miami. Right now I'm driving uh, through the Florida Turnpike, listening to your podcast. And I just want to reach out and send some positive vibes, man. If you're ever in town, feel free to hit me up. Uh, I'm into surfing and all that stuff, so I try to go out as much as I can. Your podcast pushes me to try to be a little more adventurous wherever I go, so thanks to that, man. Keep up the great work. Luciano, thank you for sending that in, man. Appreciate it. I traveled to Peru when I was 14 years old. It's one of my first big surf trips. We went down and we surfed, what's that wave called? Chicama. Chicama. The longest left in the world. We got some fun waves. Then we went um, into the Manu jungle for a week. That was cool. That was a really fun trip. We took a boat up this river, and we saw a giant otter caiman fight there. Saw a jaguar in the wild. That was a blast. Went with my dad and my brother. So I have fond memories of Peru. If any of you want to send me a quick voice memo on your phone, you can let me know who you are, where you're listening from, and email it to info at kyle.surf. That's info at kyle.surf, and I'd love to play it. Try and keep it under 30 seconds, um, and just pretend like you're leaving me a message on the, on the telephone. Big thank you to Martin Randall and Mike Smith-Martinez for donating to the podcast on Patreon this week. High five, guys. Uh, this is an ad-free podcast, and I rely on people like you to keep it that way. So all of you out there who donate on Patreon, who give this podcast ratings on iTunes, share it with your friends, um, big thank you. Big thank you. This podcast was recorded a while ago. I did this one at... Um, why am I spacing on the name? It was a festival. It was the... Um, festival out in the Salton Sea. What's the name of it? The Bombay Beach Biennale. I went out there with Chris Ryan and my buddy uh, Shane, Shane Heath, who just started the company Mudwater, um, which is this mushroom blend of, you know, it's got cacao and reishi and lion's mane, all this good stuff. And it's um, weaning me off of my coffee addiction. So... Those guys do not sponsor the podcast, but they are a good company who I like to support. And my girlfriend is bringing me a cup of mud water right now, serendipitously. We didn't even plan on it. Um, So yeah, they're good. They're good. But um, I recorded this podcast in an RV out at the Bombay Beach Biennale in the Salton Sea. And for those of you who don't know... This is Kevin Johnson. Kevin Johnson is the founder and CEO of Gravity Water Institute in Austin, Texas. Zero Gravity is a state-of-the-art flotation center and private research facility. He is also the designer and manufacturer of Zero Gravity float rooms. Kevin brings a vast amount of knowledge, insight, and experience to the world of flotation. He has been floating since 1986. It's a lot of time in the darkness, my friends. A lot of time in the darkness. Uh, When he went back to work for one of the world's first commercial flotation centers, 
Kevin is a popular public speaker, giving presentations on flotation tanks, consciousness, shamanism, plant medicines, and psychedelics. He's been featured in several magazines and frequently appears on many popular podcasts, including Tangentially Speaking, The Duncan Trussell Family Hour, and The Warrior Poet with Aubrey Marcus. He's a really cool dude, and I'm happy to know him. If any of you are out in Austin, Texas, I recommend getting out there and floating with Kevin at Zero Gravity Institute. Um, yeah, super chill guy. He's one of those people who you sit down with and immediately your shoulders just drop half an inch and you realize you can relax a little bit more because he brings that kind of energy. So... All of you can sit back, take a deep breath, grab some mud water, and I hope that you enjoy this conversation with Kevin Johnson. Kyle Tierman here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. Um, thank you for sitting down to make this happen. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks. Appreciate um, the invitation. How did you get into spelunking? Well, I, I grew up in the hill country in Texas, uh, outside of Austin, a small little town out in, out in the hills. And uh, that whole area sits on what's called the, Ed, the Edwards Plateau. It's just a big limestone, ancient limestone reef. And... Um, just the way the water moves through the ground there, it carves out caves. And so as a kid growing up out in the country, wasn't, you know, so much to do. And so we spent all of our time out like hiking and swimming in the creeks. And, you know, eventually we started discovering caves and as our skills developed and we got a little bolder, we pushed further and further into these cave systems. And, uh, I just became fascinated with it. It's like, it's, uh, there's something, that's so uh grounding about being in the earth like that you know it's like almost a spiritual experience crawling in the mother and um i've just always really appreciated that aspect of it and the, and the ex the the exploration part of it like pushing into the unknown pushing past your fear to go somewhere and do something that most people don't do you know just yeah even really on a me. on a sensory basis the acoustics of spelunking yeah. and the temperature change when you go into a chain uh, into mm -hmm. a cave um are fascinating on their own i haven't done a ton of it but yeah. there are a few caves around the santa cruz area that i've been in and that's one thing that i was struck by initially right um, it's just the sensory difference yeah as soon as you as soon as you go underground yeah when you get to a place where you can just turn off your light and just have complete darkness and just listen to the sound that the cave is making drips of water wind blowing through you know it's it's amazing it's really cool so what are the skills that you develop as a spelunker early on you you talked about how um as your skills developed you became more bold what is what are some of the things that you learned about well i would say it's just about like it's physical skills like just being able to um, be confident with like basic rock climbing and bouldering skills and um, uh, 
in a lot of ways, like just navigating your own fear, right? Because you don't know where you're going. You don't know what you're going to get yourself into, what you might discover, you know? So it's uh, just the skill building thing is like physical, like learning how to use ropes and, you know, descending equipment and ascending equipment and things like that. You know, just as you you go along, you just pick up more and more of these skills because you want to go places that, oh, I can't get there without ropes, right? So I got to get some ropes and learn how to do it and you know, so it's just a cumulative thing. Have you always had that adventurous spirit? Oh, absolutely. From yeah. a young kid. Yeah, I was really lucky. My um, my parents used so I have three brothers, so they were always looking for things that four boys could do to burn off some energy. And so they were always really good about like taking us camping and hiking. And I spent. Uh, a, a bit, of, a good bit of time when I was growing up in uh, southern Utah, like in the in the canyon country, and and uh, my my dad's family settled in that area, you know, 150 years ago. So uh, he knew the place like the back of his hand, and so in the summertime we'd go out in the desert and like explore these canyons and ghost towns and old mining operations and stuff, you know, and they, they were really cool about letting us just kind of run wild a little bit, take risks and, uh, you know, learn for ourselves, like what the possibilities were and what the ramifications of our decisions were, but out there. Right. Did you ever push up against any of those risks while you're spelunking that forced you to pause and reflect? Constantly. Right. Like you're always asking yourself, like, is what I'm about to do worth the risk? Is what I what I might discover, what I might see, what I might experience is is that worth going 200 feet down a rope into a dark hole? You know, you got to weigh it out. And I have to say, the older I get, the, the less risk I take. When I was really young, I just wanted to go for it always. You know, the bigger the drop in a cave, the better to me. And uh, it's just, you know, it's being down there is like being on another planet. And so it, there's risk involved in getting there. And, and that's part of what keeps it special is not everyone is willing to take those risks. Not everyone has the skills to get in and out safely. And uh, I, I just, to me, I just find it all like fascinating and, and uh, fortifying, you know, like it changes your energy structure you 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 uh you get a lot of energy by being in the earth that that is so yeah and it builds your it builds your character too absolutely i'm sure with every dive that you take when you push past a fear and you come out successfully and you gain more skills um as a young man that really is as you said fortifying who you are um and then Maybe you take those skills and you transfer them into another discipline. You say, well, no, this is the kind of person that I am. Yeah. And like it brings to mind the the rites of passage thing. Like in our culture, we just don't have, I mean, you get a driver's license, you go off to college, right? There's there's some things that um, that approach this idea, but it seemed like just naturally as a kid, I was like creating rites of passage for myself. Like I, I, I'm... I'm skilled enough and, and brave enough to like pass through, pass this next threshold and see what's on the other side. And that, that I think is a good skill that you just take into your life. And as, as, as you grow and get older and stuff, you have that confidence to say, well, I've faced the unknown before and it's worth it. Like I'm willing to take a certain amount of risk, use the skills that I have and, 
do this new thing, whether it's a business opportunity or some kind of outdoor adventure or... Yeah, I, I think that there are a lot of aspects of past cultures that we should take and have a reverence and respect for, and yeah. rites of passage is definitely one of those. Right. And it's unfortunate that w that we need to create those for ourselves in this culture because I think too often young men especially will seek those um, challenges out, mm -hmm. but do it in unhealthy ways. Right, right. So it's um, really lucky, um, and maybe more than luck just played into it, that you had your natural surroundings to right. be a part of and push up against these risks in a healthy way. Yeah. Yeah. And we're, we're, um, this conversation makes me think about something that my wife and I do for, uh, we have this arrangement with our nieces and nephews because we're both very aware of this lack of, of ritual around becoming an adult, right? We have this, uh, arrangement with our nieces and nephews that when they graduate high school, if they've kept a good grade point average and, you know, stayed mostly out of trouble, the, the standard's not super high, right? It's just like, we can see that you're pointed in a good direction. The agreement is that we'll then take you anywhere in the world that you want to go for two weeks. And it's such an amazing learning experience for us because we get to watch these, you know, you're, you're taking a kid right out of high school. They're just kids. And in two weeks of being out in the world on their own, you bring back a young adult. It's amazing to watch the transformation because our thing is when, while we're traveling, we let them make the decisions and we let them make mistakes. Even if we know they're making a mistake, we'll let them do it until they discover on their own that they've done it. Maybe we got on the wrong train and went 30 minutes in the wrong direction or whatever, but we let it happen. We, we, if they want to make a side trip to go somewhere and see something, some attraction or uh, some part of the country that we're in, then we make them figure it out. Like, what train do we get on? What, what time do we have to be at the station? Where, where do we get on? Where do we get off? What do we do when we get there? But we let them work it out. You're also establishing a really healthy dynamic between your nieces and nephews um, around trust and honesty. Mm-hmm. Because you're saying, if you do this, then then we will fulfill this promise mm. that we have. And how often is it that kids and parents just don't trust each other mm -hmm. because one of the two parties don't fulfill their obligations, and then you get in this these really weird murky waters. Right. It's like being it's like being in a relationship. Most people talk about being in a relationship with a um, a partner um, where you can't trust the person. Right. But. Um, but that also happens with uh, with kids. <laughs> we have a Chris Ryan walking in the desert outside of us right now. Still my podcast guest. Lurking, lurking outside the window. Why are you podcasting with him? I'm, I'm sorry, Chris. I, I didn't mean you to find for you to find I out this way. Told you not to podcast with anyone else. <laughs> I, Quick, close the curtains. We was, weren't doing anything. Just too tempting. <laughs> the great Chris Ryan, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, <laughs> great conduit <laughs> yeah he's a super good guy yeah um do you uh so speaking about rites of passages um this is kind of your line of work now um mm -hmm. how did you transition into um float tanks mm -hmm. and uh, working with plant medicine um as, as well and if you want to go further down the other road we, we can but I felt yeah, I feel like that's kind of a natural uh, uh, natural so segue my story with both of these things goes back you know 30 plus years um, right after I finished college and um, 
I moved out to Los Angeles to work. Um, I was studying music and theater and things like that. So it was a logical place for me to be. Um, and I discovered that, so I had seen the movie Altered States. Are you familiar with that? No, I'm not. So this is a Ken Russell film. I think it came out in like 1980, right? And uh, William Hurt was in it. And it was the story of these Harvard scientists that had gone to Mexico and visited the Weechel Indians and brought back these psychedelic mushrooms. And when they got back to Harvard, they, they started studying them and they used the flotation tank as a method for for uh, studying the effects of this this compound, right? And this is a Hollywood movie. It's a Hollywood movie, yeah. And uh, as some people may or may not know, like that was something that the uh, the flotation tank early in its development was. Uh, that's one of the reasons that Dr. Lilly uh, came up with the idea for the float tank, because they were the prevailing theories at the time said that without sensory stimulation, that the brain would just like go to sleep you just kind of slip into a light coma or something so they were they they wanted to test that so they created this sensory deprivation environment so they could study the effect on the brain and they found out it was actually just the opposite that the cognitive function increases and and you become more alert and more aware right aware on many different levels and uh, and then and so of course naturally that evolved into the study of different psychedelic compounds like what what will these compounds do if there's no sensory input to play on, right? So, what, like, you know, we talk about hallucinating with psychedelics and, you know, seeing the walls move or some object become liquid or something. So, what if, what if there was no wall to look at? What if there's no object to interact with? What what would this compound be doing on the brain? So, the movie kind of took this idea around the flow tanks and what it could be used for, and created this uh, this movie about. It, it got very Hollywood after that, right? Because the guy takes these mushrooms, goes in the tank, and then he turns into like a, a proto-hominid. So like just, this monkey guy comes out <laughs> of the tank, right? So I, I didn't realize that the flotation tank was a real thing. I, I, I just thought of it as like this mechanism for this movie. And I loved the movie. I was, I was already like dabbling with uh, plant medicines and shamanism and stuff at that point. And um, so here was this... Uh, the movie was fascinating to me because it was dealing with all this stuff. But again, I didn't realize the tank was a real thing. I got out to Los Angeles, and within the first couple of weeks of being there, there was an article in the Weekly about this flotation center, and it showed a picture of the float tank, and it was the exact same float tank that was used in the movie. And I made this, there was this sudden connection. I was like, oh, that's a real thing. Like, I can go try that thing that I saw in the movie. And uh, I, in retrospect, my first floating experience was actually really profound. I had no points of reference for what it would be like or what to expect from it. So I went in, I did, a, I think I just did an hour float. And then I went down to the beach. I was living uh, near Venice at the time. And uh, I just, I went to the beach and I just started walking. And I was in this different state of consciousness than I had ever been in. Like I was so like calm and focused and just in the present moment. I wasn't really thinking about anything else that was going on. And I, 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 it felt so new and interesting to me. I couldn't quite believe that 
this state of consciousness could be attributed to something as deceptively simple as laying in a dark box full of warm salt water. Like it just, I couldn't get my head around it, you know? And so I went, uh, a few days later, I, I, um, I went back cause I had to check it out again and figure out like what was going on. Right. That's the kind of brain I have. Once I get into an idea, I have to pursue it. So, uh, I went back in and, and floated again. And on that visit, I was lucky enough to meet one of the owners of the center. And, uh, he saw that I was intrigued and interested and they had an opening. And so he offered me a job there. And so th this was at a time when there was only two commercial float centers in the world. Right. And, uh, so I, I got to have the experience of working there, seeing the, the people that were coming in, the kind of transformative work that was being done in the tanks. And then I had just unrestricted access to the tanks. So I was working as a maintenance guy. So I had keys to get in in the morning so I could go in the middle of the night and spend six or eight hours in the tank, just experimenting, just learning it, just, you know, studying the, the possibilities of this, of putting the, the body and the mind into this kind of environment. So I was really, really lucky. And then, so that was 1986. You so said I've been you, at it for a good while. Wow. So you said that you went in that first time, you had a good experience, but something drew you back to it. Yeah. Can you define what that curiosity was? Well, it was an, it was an awareness that, uh, that my awareness changed. There was something different about how I was seeing the world. Like, and on a really basic level, you've restricted sensory input to the point where, you know, the brain has sort of turned up the gain knob, right? It, it's looking for more information. I need information. I need to have something to do. And so when you first come out of the tank, it's like colors are more vivid and, and brilliant. The s smells, tastes, uh, just sensations. Sex is amazing after floating, right? It's like everything is kind of intensity knob is yeah, turning turn the up volume bit, up right and uh and i guess that that has always been something that's appealed to me like that more intense kind of experience or intensification of of life life and it's all of its possible sensations you know i guess that's what made me an adventurous kid and a risk taker and you know a a, a seeker a traveler like you know all of these things so I think that's what it was. I just wanted to, I wanted to know more. I wanted to get a hold of this new sort of state of consciousness that I was experiencing. And did you ever have a, a fear of the own, of your, of the contents of your mind, the contents of your consciousness? Oh, were there yeah. ever places that you were afraid to go that the float tank opened up for you? I, I would say, I would say that that is still a possibility for me even after 30 years of floating thousands and thousands of hours uh, of being in there working with plant medicines like always right because there's always some part of you that you're uncertain I mean if we're being honest with ourselves like there's always a part of our consciousness that we might be a little afraid to face I mean this is the work that we're all engaged in right is working through this stuff everything in our experience, in our life, is in our brain. Whether or not we've taken it out and looked at it is a completely different matter. So 
it's not unusual in the flotation tank to have a memory, a very vivid, strong memory of something that you haven't thought about since the moment it happened, right? Like decades old memories that will suddenly come up in the tank. It makes you realize it's all in there. So what about the trauma? What about the disappointment? What about, right? how much of that is having an effect on me now without me even knowing it. It's just in my subconscious, right? In the float tank, you're taking away 90% of the workload of your brain and your central nervous system, right? It's giving the brain an opportunity to reallocate its resources to doing other kinds of background work that it doesn't normally do. Like looking through the old files and figuring out, is this something I need to keep? Is this something that I haven't dealt with yet? Or should I just file it appropriately? It's like defragmenting your hard drive. Right. That's how I look at it, right? So um, I think that, you know, one of, one of the things that I do talk with to people um, about floating is that it's not always easy. It is sometimes very scary. And as your practice matures and you learn to go deeper and deeper and let go more and let go more, you are definitely going to experience uh, memories and feelings about how have I treated this person? How was this interaction with this person? How did that go? Like you're going to look at some stuff about yourself that you don't like. How do you recommend people move through those scary experiences? Relax and let go more. That's, that's like my mantra when it comes to floating. That's the, oh, that's, that is the essential skill of the floating practice. It's, it's very simple. Relax, let go. Relax more, let go more. Just keep doing it over and over again. It's a kind of meditation, right? You will just, as time goes by, as you get more and more floats, you'll, you'll just keep going deeper and deeper and deeper. And that's what's fascinating about it. That's what keeps me coming back to the float tank after all these years is like, I never know what's next. Where, how deep can I go? What can I experience? What can I remember? Right? I've, I've done experiments to try to retrieve uh, old memories, and I've been able to um, have memories of being an infant and laying on my mom's stomach and feeling her breath and the, the sensation of her omnipotence, like she was the only thing in my universe, right? And it's all in there. We're... we're, we're, we're taking in all of our experiences and the tank is just one great tool for accessing that kind of thing given how much you've studied your own mind mm -hmm. and given how much you think about the contents of the brain what is it that you believe about the mind that most people don't oh <laughs> well that's a tough question because i don't i don't uh I know it's hard because you don't know what most people believe, but what do you think are what do you think are big misconceptions that that people have about the human mind? Um, I think that sometimes we limit ourselves by not seeing how much potential that we have. Um, uh, there are other uh, types of reality around us, right? Like that. Uh, you, we don't access them 
Yeah, just humans. Because uh, we're, we're not involved in practices that allow us to access them. We, we um, default to this consensus reality, and we miss the subtle realities that are around us, the ones that are just separated by just the thinnest of veils, right? And then we apply the requisite stimuli, and then suddenly these other realities become open to us, and we can... We can get knowledge and information and insight and understanding and change, change our own reality by changing the way we function and move through this one. Yeah. Right. And uh, that's something that I'm for most of my life have realized, like there's some importance about this. Right. Human beings have always done this. We've always tried to put ourselves in altered states of consciousness. Even as little kids, we spin around in circles till we're dizzy. Right. It's just something about it. As a little kid, I used to put myself in dark spaces like caves or under the stairs, like places where I was just interested in like being in the dark, like cutting myself off from it. Yeah. It's a new pers- a, a new perspective. Yeah. And what that can offer. And we've done it all through human evolution. Like there's always been this thing about like altering our consciousness, whether we're doing it through meditation or sensory deprivation or compounds that, you know, elicit certain experiences. Like we do that as humans. There's something important in all that. Yeah. What, what is it? There's a great quote. I'm going to misattribute it if I try, but, uh, something along the lines of, if you want to understand the mind, sit down and observe it. Hmm. Yeah so simple right you said that you had experimented with psychedelics before you got into the float world Mm -hmm. Uh, what was it that drew you to that Uh, I think that same thing again just that curiosity that like fascination with the unknown and so uh, would would you say that those initial experiences um, were done in a, a healthy and responsible way or was it would you say that you did it more uh, in a cavalier kind of like, Hey, let's just try it and see what happens kind of way. Yeah. I think because, uh, I think because you're 18, 19 years old, like most of what you do is cavalier. (laughs) (laughs) So, but uh, you know, when I look back, I I can see that we were, we were being respectful, like mostly I I went to an art school, so we had creative thinkers, open-minded kids all getting together to, uh, to study. And, um, so we were, we were, uh, mostly spending our time with mushrooms. That was sort of the introduction to the world of psychedelics for me. Um, occasionally, you know, like LSD or something. And, um, but I, I think we were at least aware that we were doing something extraordinary and unique. There was a, there was a type of reverence given to it. I mean, we don't have teachers in our culture. We didn't, we didn't have, shamans and elders to teach us the the importance of what we were what we were doing what we're messing with so um we we just had to trust our intuition and i can look back on it and i can say like we were pretty respectful of it it wasn't a party situation it was an ex it was an exploration let's get together and explore let's see what can happen and then we talk about it we'd even do the the integration work we'd sit around the next day and what, what was your experience like? And what did you learn? What did you see? What did you do? Right. So, uh, 
I think we handled it pretty good. Yeah, 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 and I don't mean to come off as a purist as I've experimented well, no. with psychedelics in all different kinds of settings, and I can say that there have been times when I've used psychedelics and it's been a real fun time down at the beach with my friends. Right. And maybe not a ton of integrated learning that I used from the experience after the fact, uh-huh. and I've also sat in ceremony and spent days after the fact with very little sensory input and journaling right. and have benefited more from those experiences but that's not to say that the time down at the beach with my friends wasn't great as well and, and worthwhile yeah right i mean these were were, were uh, kind of on the fly creating ritual and ceremony even if it's just what comes natural to us down at the beach sure as we as we were talking about earlier we we are drawn to these kinds of experience mm-hmm. experiences whether it's an altered state or a rite of passage um and we'll seek them out in whatever environments are available to us. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and I'm, I, when I look back on it, I, I, there's a certain amount of pride when I think back and realize that, I mean, 25, 30 years ago, this was, uh, uh, you didn't talk about this stuff. It's not like today where we can go on podcasts and we can talk openly about the psychedelic experience and, you know, kids that are, um, reaching maturity right now and, and experimenting, uh, with entheogens and different plant medicines and stuff like there's an openness around it. We're recognizing science is recognizing the benefits. So it's lending some legitimacy and allowing it to be talked about in the mainstream without this big shadow of, Oh, oh no drugs. Right. 25, 30 years ago, that was a component of this. And it makes me feel good to look back and realize that like we were early, you know, early in our lives, we were already like touching it. We were like, there's a sense of like something important here going on. There's some kind of healing going on. These experiences are making us better people. And, you know, we had to trust that even though our culture, our society was like really pushing back hard against anything like that. Yeah. Would you say that those initial experiences, um, spurred the same curiosity as the float tank experiences of, of being able to sit down and notice the contents of your mind or was it something other than that? Uh, no, I think that's, I think that's accurate. I mean, I think that's a kind of an underlying theme for me, you know, but also just, uh, with psychedelics, there's always for me that curiosity about okay, well, I, what if I went a little further? What if I leaned into this experience? If I stepped into it with more commitment and I learned, I let go a little more and went a little further, like what, what are the limits of that? Are, are there any limits to that? I mean, we, we, uh, drink a lot of ayahuasca and it's like every experience, it's like, can I go deeper? Can I go deeper? Can I, can I relax and go into this experience, you know, with fearlessness, respect, What's what's your process after um, an an experience with mushrooms or ayahuasca to integrate that learning? I go right back to the float tank. Right back to the float tank. Right. So let's talk about the unsexy part of all this, (laughs) the integration. (laughs) So we, I always do a float. Like if I'm going into like a three day ayahuasca retreat, I'll float the day before, um, just to help myself relax and you know get get my into the right mental frame for, for what I'm about to experience. And, and then, uh, and then immediately afterwards, within a day or two after finishing a retreat, I'll go in the tank. It's, you know, 
all of these compounds, especially ayahuasca, can be such a fireworks show. It can be such sensory overload, right? Uh, your, your visual thing is off the chart. Your auditory thing goes off the chart. There's the whole physical experience of ayahuasca, the purging, the sounds of the people around you, the, just the, the mental energy of, of that medicine and the experiences that it elicits. So the float tank is like all the opposite of that, right? It's quiet, it's calm, it's dark. It's, it's an opportunity to really let the experiences of the ceremony, like come back to you. Like the, what, 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 what are the highlights here? What are the key things that I need to take away from what I just did? And to kind of sort them out and organize them and put them in a flow chart that, to put the pieces together so you can start to understand. We're finding that the float tank is just an amazing integration tool. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like a really good partner to being able to uh, organize a lot of the insights that come. Right. Do, will you physically journal after a, a float tank or how do you, like, can you give me an example of an insight that you may have had during a ceremony and how you work to integrate that into your life? Um, I've had a lot of ceremonies now. I'm sure. So, <laughs> um, I think, um, realizing that we do this kind of work for as much for the people around us as, as for ourselves. I, I see that like, for instance, you know, my wife, her life is her life is better when I'm doing my work. And we, so we do that for each other. You know, she, she, she does her work and she, she makes life better for me. And that starts to ripple out into our community. Right. And so we become the field of practice. Right. And, um, I, I just think that's maybe not the most important part of doing this kind of work, but it is an important part. And it's the one that it's the one that starts to change the world one little community at a time. Right. And then those communities start to overlap. And now you have this bigger group of people that deal with the world with empathy and compassion and understanding and insight and tolerance. Right. Was there a point in your life that you realized you were good at this and that you had an offering past just helping yourself with this kind of medicine? Because one theme that I've noticed from, from listening to you talk is that you really aren't, af aren't afraid to go deep, whether that's in a cave or exploring the contents of your own mind, wow. uh, in a way that most people are afraid to do that. Oh. Um, so is that something that you acknowledge yourself that you do have a, a skill here? And, and was there a point when you acknowledged that and decided to, um, to go deeper into all of this work? Uh, so <laughs> I think that, uh, as I get older, I'm looking for more opportunities to serve. And if I can facilitate in someone's personal transformation, their healing work, that is service that I'm interested in doing. So I don't know if it's an acknowledgement of like, oh, I'm good at that, as much as it's an acknowledgement of uh, it's really good for me when I have these opportunities to serve 
my community. And so you do things like build flotation tanks or open a float center so that you can create an environment to facilitate the kind of deep transformative work that can happen there. Or you become involved in an ayahuasca community and, and work as an ayudante, as a helper, as an apprentice, as a, as a student to serve in that community. It's, it, that's kind of what's becoming more and more important to me as, as I grow older. So, I'd love to hear about your experience becoming an ayudante. Uh, <laughs> uh, so we had, my wife and I had been drinking ayahuasca with, with um, a maestro and his assistant for, uh, I guess, about a year before we started receiving subtle encouragement from them to become more involved, to study the medicine deeper, to learn more about it. Uh, so we started with simple steps like learning the ikaros, the, the sacred songs that we sing during ceremony so that we, we could uh, assist the shamans and you know, give them a break. Because there's six hour, seven hour long ceremonies. It's a lot of singing to do. So just on a very pragmatic level, it was good to have more people that knew the Icaros so they didn't have to be doing, you know, belting for seven yeah, hours straight for until six hours seven straight. in the morning. Although it's quite enjoyable and helps, uh, on, helps us on a lot of levels, but, uh, they started us with simple things like that, you know, and then just, we started dieting trees and, um, doing more and more ceremonies and learning shamanic techniques like the soplas and the ventiadas and things like that. And it was just, it's been this slow, organic, uh, what are the ventiadas? So the ventiada is a, um, it's a procedure that we will do for you during an ayahuasca ceremony. If you are experiencing a particularly hard time. So if you're not, um, uh, if you've got, um, if you're purging and you're, you're purging really hard and, it, and we can kind of tell like when it's coming from a really, really deep place and whether or not that purge is, is, um, effective. And if you're getting out what you need to get out, um, or if you're struggling, uh, psychologically with some issue that you might be having during ceremony, we see a lot of, uh, heavy duty work being done. And sometimes people can use some assistance. And so, uh, ventiata is something we perform when we, we sense that you're needing help to work through this moment. Right. And, um, so we will sit in front of that person and we will let the medicine, uh, tell us which ikoro to choose for you. Like the medicine may say that, uh, this person needs to have, uh, a tree ikro and we want to call in the specific tree to lend the attributes of this tree to the healing and cleaning that ayahuasca is doing in this person. So medicine will let us know that. And then we'll sing that ikro to you specifically for you one-to-one. -one. And then, um, we use, a, a, a flower water aquaforida. Um, after we sing the song to you, we will, um, we will do what's called a sopla, uh, it's hard to describe here, but it's uh, we, we'll um, form a tube with our hand, put some aqua florida on on our hand, put a little aqua florida in our mouth, and then we'll we'll uh, put our hand on top of your head, and we'll deliver a breath, a very specific kind of breath, and we'll blow down through your crown chakra and down your central channel to calm the medicine. In, in you, if, if that's what the issue is, or sometimes we do that just for protection, kind of a sealing 
Um, uh, it's just a way for us to help you. The Ventiat is just a, a way to help you through whatever moment you're experiencing or having trouble with. What kind of changes will you see in people when you have given them a Ventiata? Uh, well, like for instance, if someone is um, working through something that's very emotional, and they're you know crying and and you know you can just they're they're just really struggling, it just gives them a sense of calmness, right? We're we're kind of um, attenuating the energy of the medicine so that it it uh, gives you a break and lets lets you have a moment to kind of get your feet back under you, because a lot of times the uh, ayahuasca experience can just be so overwhelming like you just you, you you can't figure out how to handle it so this is sometimes the ventiata is just a way for us to calm the energy of the medicine down a little bit till you get your feet back under you and who is the maestro that you are working under right now uh, his name is zach poitra and uh he came to us uh, a few years ago uh, he had been in the jungle. He had a, a retreat center down there called La Familia, Iowa. Uh, La Familia Medicina was the name of that retreat center. And um, various issues, I, I, don't, I probably shouldn't get too deep into it because I, I don't know if he wants it. Uh, but there were just some issues in the jungle with, uh, the, with the growth of uh, ayahuasca tourism and the competition between shamans and uh, the some of ethical questions about how the medicine was being sure. um, facilitated down there. Um, he left the jungle and he came back to the States and uh, now we're in the process of um, opening a new center in Guatemala. It'll be at Lake Atazman cool. in Guatemala. Yeah, we don't need to get too into it, but I think it is worth mentioning for people who are interested in using ayahuasca to be very responsible and careful about who you choose to do it with because there are those ethical concerns in certain areas for sure um so it's something to to not take lightly when you're deciding where to where to go and um and who to sit with right this this is the challenge of shamanism in general is it, it comes down to ethics and authenticity and intention so you want to make sure that these these things are very clear before you trust someone to to uh, administer this medicine and, and to you know take you through this kind of experience. Sure. Yeah. And you're setting up a spot in Guatemala now. You said. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, it'll be up and running in July. Exciting. Mm -hmm. What's it called? It's called Ayahuasca Family. Cool. Yeah. There's a website and everything for it. So you became. Uh, sorry, what was the, the name of a, a helper? So we call it an ayudante. An ayudante. Yeah. So that's so the ayudante is just like a it's a, kind of like a pre-apprenticeship. So you're learning just basic skills, and you're um, the the ayudantes are the ones that are going to help you get up and go to the restroom if you're having a problem. They're the ones that are cooking food for you in the morning. They're the ones that are cleaning your puke bucket and picking up your used Kleenexes and stuff off the floor, right? So um, it's a humbling um, position to serve in, but it's very rewarding yeah. to help you to see this group of people come through and do this, this deep work and, um, and the benefits that they're getting and, and you get the opportunity to take care of them so they can just focus on what they're doing. Yeah. We were talking before the podcast about, uh, what a, 
privilege it must feel like to get to spend so much time with people mm. who are in this place in their lives where they're really moving through something in a courageous way. Yeah. Because it's not always fun drinking plant medicine. It can be it's a, usually a, not. It's usually fun. not. It's, can, it right. can be it's a, a horrifying experience. Uh, and it is a rite of passage on a certain level. Some people talk about using ayahuasca as a kind of spiritual death. Yeah. Um, and or moving through into a new, a new kind of form of truth, and really f- facing some scary shit. Um, yeah. So how cool it, it is that you've set up a life for yourself where you get to spend that amount of time around those kinds of people. Yeah, the people that are doing that hard work, and and I, I can't say enough about the shamans that we work with, um, it's a husband and wife team. Now they've recently been married, uh, uh, Zach and Jess Poitra is their name and their new beautiful son, Bodhi, my godson. Um, I have always been so, uh, blown away by the level of commitment that they have uh, so much admiration for the intensity of their work and their lifestyle around it. It's an all day, every day thing. It's, they're not like just, Hey, I'm a shaman on the weekend. You know, it's not like that. It's a full life commitment. Their, their diet, their, their, uh, meditation practice, their, their spiritual practices, their, their medicine work, their service to the community. It's, it's humbling to, to see people that have made that level of commitment and, and are so dedicated to it. And again, one of the things that made me reluctant about, I don't want to say reluctant, but uh, my slow progress into the world of apprenticeship. Slow adopter. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, Slow adoption of of the idea of apprenticeship was just like this uncertainty about whether I could be that committed the way that I saw them. I, I, I saw that that's how you have to be, to be real and effective and authentic and about and ethical about the work that you're doing you have to live it like that day in day out 100 percent all the time right no compromises and uh, I, I didn't know if i if i had that right and i and I, I still don't i mean i'm just a student you know and uh it's uh every day that's a question yeah for me you know like how how much of this can I integrate into everyday life? I still have businesses I have to run. I still have responsibilities outside of the, you know, shamanic world or whatever. Yeah. I was, was listening to a podcast just recently and, um, with, uh, what was it? Um, I believe it was with Dr. Gabor Mate and he was talking Mm. about the word responsible. Mm. And if you decouple that word, it's response able. Yeah, right. So your desire to be response able in an ayahuasca ceremony is uh-huh. is very well founded. You want to be able to to respond right to any given situation that occurs. And if you want to put yourself in sometimes unruly seas, you better know how to swim. <laughs> I love it, man, cuz you know, it's a it's a thing that I go into every ceremony now with this, uh, this kind of fear about, you know, how much medicine to drink and how can I, if I'm in the middle of my super intense experience and someone needs help, am I going to be able to 
navigate that situation? Am I going to be able to actually get my shit together, st- actually stand <laughs> up and go over and help somebody? Like it's it's really something I go in a little worried about every time, you know. And how do you uh, manage that conflict in your mind? Well. So luckily, uh, you know, right now there's four of us that are behind the mesa. So there's there's the there's Zach and Jess, so the maestro, and his assistant Jess, and then uh, I'll sit on on to the right side of Zach, and my wife Carol will sit to the left of Jess. So there's four of us that are able to respond respond and help so you don't you don't have the weight of I'm the only one that can do this right. So if you just can't get it together to do it somebody else is going to stand up and do it but part of this is the desire to like want to be there for people and help them and assist them through through this so you know there's part of you that always wants to be able to respond right yeah what a unique perspective you've been able to have both in float tanks and in ceremony to you've 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 had the opportunity to be in it for a while and in recent years see it gain huge popularity oh yeah what do you attribute that to was there ever a point that you saw it really start to explode in the way that it has and you can respond to either Uh, float tanks or or ayahuasca well so as far as float tanks go i thought back in the late 80s that this was going to become ubiquitous that there would be float centers on every corner that people would have them in their homes that you know uh, because i saw the benefits that i was getting and and the benefits that our customers our clients were getting i was you know getting to know people that had you know regular floating practice and i was seeing it change them so i was thinking certainly it would it would happen uh but then you know we had the aids crisis to deal with and and we, at the time we knew very little about how that disease was transmitted and um so the idea of public water you know i mean you may not be old enough to remember that time but uh people were worried about drinking fountains and doorknobs and shaking hands with people that you didn't know like we had no idea what was going on wow. in this crisis so so it it basically shut the floating world down by by the early 90s, I, there was probably just a handful of float centers left in, in the world, you know? Probably shut a lot of social interactions down. I, I would think so, yeah. And then we saw it start, uh, I would say, probably five and a half, six years ago um, because of some very, very vocal proponents of floating, like Joe Rogan uh, is a big-time floater, has a tank in his house. He was talking about it. It was opening the conversation. Other podcasters... Uh, Chris, Ryan, and Duncan Trussell, you know, the people that had an interest in this kind of thing, they started talking about it and it started, people started hearing about it and looking into it. What's this about? What are the benefits? You know, and, um, it's amazing how often the messenger is just as important as the message. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've talked to, to Joe Rogan about it, you know, and he doesn't want to take credit for it, but he, he kind of has to take credit for it. Like it's his conversation that, that, that got the whole conversation started again, yeah. you know? And, and so I think, you know, that is a, a little different, uh, that had a little different trajectory than, than things like psychedelics and shamanism. And that, that I feel like has been just kind of 
the interest has just steadily been growing, right? Like something that used to seem so, um, taboo. Well, yeah. I I mean, even so like I'm thinking about my early like experiences with sweat lodges. So like, you know, in, in the mid to late eighties, if you told somebody that, that you were sitting with a shaman in a sweat lodge, I mean, man, you were, you're out there. You're way out there. So think about how common that is now, right? And, uh, oh, I sat with this shaman and did this plant medicine. Like, you would have been thought of as, like, a total psychonaut, like, just on the bleeding edge of exploration, <laughs> right? Now it's common. I like, have a sweat lodge in my backyard. Right, yeah. <laughs> Twice and, last and week. How many people do you know that have, have sat with the beautiful healing ayahuasca? It's like... You know, it's it's just steadily grown, and as 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 we see the benefits that come from this kind of work, you know, shamanism offers a lot, and uh, I think people become more open to it as they see others being affected positively. They're like, well, maybe I should try a little of that ayahuasca, or maybe I should get in that float tank, or maybe I should sit with this shaman in a lodge. Right. I think it's a testament also to how persuasive the medium of an honest testimony is. Mm. People are very smart and keen to um, messages that are being sold to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and having someone who's in your friend group or someone as persuasive as Rogan saying, hey, right. I float. Right. This is what it's done for me. Um I believe is is one of the most effective messages that can be conveyed because it is authentic and honest. Right. Yeah, and this is this is the great thing that we enjoy in the floating world is that even though it's become very popular and a lot of people know about it, a lot of people still haven't done it. Right? And so for a lot of people if when they go float, they might be the only person in their immediate social circle that's ever done it, right? And so they want to talk about it. They want to talk about how good it made them feel, how relaxing it was, how how um, keen everything was when after their float, you know, and how much more sensitive they were to the to the world. It's uh, they the people who float are great advocates for floating. Yeah. Because most people just have such a great experience from it, right? So we enjoy that like ability for the word to spread really fast. I think it's also a really good point of entry into exploring the contents of our minds. Mm-hmm. Because let's say I go in and I float. I say, I fucking hated it. It was the worst thing ever. And you could say, hmm, well, what did you hate about it? Like, right. oh, I just, I just didn't like the feeling of it. I didn't like what I was thinking. About. Like, well, what were you thinking about? Right. Like, I don't know. I was just thinking about like all the shit I have going on with my family. And you know, that really, I just, all of a sudden they're having a break. This little thread that you start pulling on. And then, you know, three years later, you're down in the Amazon jungle. Yeah. Cause it is so non-threatening. Uh, we were talking earlier about the efficacy of breath work as well. I think that that's another very non-threatening point of entry that um, can have huge impact on people. Yeah. There's something as simple as the breath. Right. And, and, you know, it's super important to like recognize that these alternatives exist, right? Because there's one kind of current that we can get caught in of uh, making it sound like vine down in the jungle. Right. Like you got to go to the jungle and drink the sacred shamanic brew and right. Like we can get into all that color. It's great. Um, but 
at the same time, like there are lots of people that need to do transformative work. They, they, because of their job, because of their family commitments, all sorts of reasons. I would argue they, that all of us need to do transformative work. Right. Just at different points in our lives, it's more, it's more pronounced. Right. But for a lot of people, there's not the opening for something as profound as ayahuasca or mushrooms or, you know, some of these, um, things that are unfortunately illegal in the United States. Um, so they can't risk it. They, they have children to think about and jobs and careers to think about. Okay. So how do we get to do that same kind of work? Um, maybe it's not the same kind of fireworks show, but ultimately through a, through a slower process, we can get a lot of the same work done in a completely safe, completely legal, like nobody's going to take you to jail for floating in a, in a float tank. Yeah. Or right? doing an hour of deep of breathing work, deeply or mindfulness meditation or yoga or right. So we have to really acknowledge the, um, the opportunity that everybody has to be able to do this work. Cause there are plenty of ways to do it that, are, that aren't restrictive. Yeah. We also have to acknowledge that the experience and that fireworks show is beautiful, but it's not the point. Right. The point is what we do with that information and how we, we reintegrate it into our day-to-day decisions and how we relate to people. Right. That's the, how we're spending most of our time here. Right. And those little moments in between, as you said earlier, you know, noticing the, the nuance of the day. Right. You know, how we speak to people how we speak to ourselves, the conversations in our own mind. Are we being a friend to ourselves right now? Most of the time we'll say shit to ourselves that we would never say to another friend and to be able to, to truly shine some light on that and change one decision at a time, I think is um, much more important than the fireworks show. Right. Right. See, you know, this is, it makes me think of something that used to always frustrate me when in conversations about, um, consciousness and, and things like that, there's this, this like silly cliche of we create our own reality. I used to hate that one. It was so like, I don't know, just something about it just repelled me, you know, it sounded so woo woo and ridiculous, you know, but it, in a way it's really true. Right. Cause there's, if, if you're changing the way you address the world around you, the way that you interact, the way that you treat people, the amount of empathy and compassion that you walk with every day, even in traffic, <laughs> right? It starts, your life starts to change. What the world's like for you starts to change. It just does. We go in and we do this, this kind of work in the flotation tank or with breath work and stuff like that. It's super valuable right? It's like teaching you, you can work through your stuff without stress and anxiety and anger and jealousy and resentment and all those other things that, that are so easy to get caught up in. You know, we can, we can do this kind of deep transformative work, this slow thing where we learn to appreciate the subtle changes that are coming to us through this practice. That's how we change our reality. That's how we change what the world looks like and feels like as we move through it. Yeah. I um, I think that one of the most heartbreaking uh, stories that I hear from people you know, who, who are doing this kind of transformative work is the amount of time they've realized that they've wasted. Yeah, yeah. Whether that be w- with unhealthy conversations in their own mind, 
um, in jobs that they hate, spending time with people who they don't really love. Mm -hmm. And one benefit that a lot of this work can do is it, it forces us to acknowledge the temporal nature of life itself Mm. and of these moments and how beautiful and temporary every single experience is. This podcast is going to be over. What we're saying right now will never be said in the same way again. So how deeply are we going to enjoy this right now? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's, it's cool. One thing that I've kind of touched on a few times is your fearlessness to move through into deeper levels Mm. because it is never ending. And that's when life gets really juicy. Yeah. Well, that's what I kind of wanted to say about that thing about people having regrets, right? Is that we, we come to these realizations when we're ready to come to them. And it takes all of those things where, oh, I feel like I wasted all this time, right? It's like, no, you didn't. You acquired those experiences. It moved you toward this current position that you're in. And now you're ready to have an awareness about how your life can be better for you, for the people around you, right? So we have to like not beat ourselves up too much about that quote, wasted time. It might not be quite as wasted as you think. Like those things happen to teach. Yeah. Because the wasted time thought, but the wasted time conversation in your own mind isn't healthy either. Right. Like you can think about that, but then to let it, um, to let that bounce around in your mind too much on its own isn't healthy. I mentioned Gabor Mate earlier and um, so much respect for his work. He he had another great line that I'll uh, regurgitate, which was that you can even thank those experiences mm-hmm. for what they had to, to teach you. Right. You don't need to hate that old job or hate that person that doesn't serve you anymore. You can thank it right. and then move on from it. Yeah. But I think what it's a so- great lesson it was to never take that kind of job again. Right. <laughs> You'll never make that mistake again, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, or that weird interaction with the person like, oh, I just got to learn to avoid that conversation, that that topic, that personality type, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Cool, man. Well, let's uh, let's enjoy the festival here. This is great here. Uh, yeah. It sure is good, and uh, I really enjoy the conversation. Is there anything um, that you recommend people check out? Any last words you want to leave people with? Um, I would say just because um, you know I have a lot of interest in seeing floating become more popular and people getting the benefits of that. Uh, I think you know if you're interested look for a float center in your area there's some resources online uh, flotationlocations.com is a pretty comprehensive um, list of of where you can float someplace close by if you're ever in austin texas you can look us up we're at zerogravityinstitute.com and zerogravityfloatrooms.com cool man we're, we're easy to find love it <laughs> thank you so much thanks for having me i really appreciate it That's our show, my friends. I'm going to play you out with a song by one of our listeners named Nate Maingard. He is a South African musician, and this song is called This Cat's Got Time. If any of you out there are musicians and you want some of your tunes played at the end of the show, you can email it to info at kyle.surf. That's also where you can email voice memos, feedback on the show, anything at all. I love hearing from you. Instagram is also probably the best way to get in touch with me. 
Thank you again to everyone who donates to this podcast on Patreon. Seriously, guys, high five. I love having this podcast be ad-free, and uh, I rely on people like you to do it. If you can't donate, no worries. Give it a rating on iTunes. Share it with a friend. Keep enjoying the show. Get out in the water, whatever water you are close to, whether that is a float tank, ocean, stream, river, or bathtub. It will make your day better. And thank you so much for listening. Hope you enjoy this song called This Cat's Got Time. I'll see you soon. Fascination for material medication by our education. Well, it's a fucked up situation. Yes, it's an awkward situation. But let's not argue pedantics about who is gonna win. Cause I'm not entering your races. So I don't think that's relevant And all I need's a patch of sunlight From which to watch the world run by You tell me life it is a rat race Well I'm the rat so I've got time Yes I'm the rat so I've got time This cat's got time This cat's got time Got time. This cat's got time.